spiritual exercises. I'm Rachel Amaday. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. Um, Wow. It is almost the end of 2023. This is just nuts. And um, I have to be honest, I'm not ready for 2024. Uh, 2024 seems like such a big leap for some reason. Um, You know, I don't know what God is doing, what God is about to do, but maybe some of you feel this. I wanted to create a podcast today around basically what I think happens a lot at this time of year. For so many people, uh, this is a time of year that is challenging. This is a time of year that's filled with depression, anxiety. Um, We get out of our normal schedules. In a lot of the country, at least in America, we have less sunlight and we're getting less vitamin D. And there's so much anxiety and depression that can take place. And people feel hopeless. They feel like they're alone a lot. This time of year gives us those moments of reflection because of the holidays, right? So many people celebrate Christmas. You know, if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, me and my family, we do not celebrate Christmas. But um, we, we do understand this time of year very well, having grown up in churches, working for churches, we know what this looks like. I think a lot of people struggle. Now, it's interesting this week, I had a chance with one of the churches I work with to visit an organization that really helps the most downtrodden in society, the poorest, and um, those who probably feel oftentimes like nothing. And one thing that really stuck out to me that's part of the pillar, one of the pillars of the organization is This concept of having a place of belonging. Everyone belongs. You know, you're supposed to be here. And that so many people, especially people who've been through a lot, they don't believe that. They don't really believe that they're supposed to be here. And this kind of struck me. I thought, wow, I've never thought about that. I've had times in my life where I felt out of place where I felt like I didn't belong. I understand that. I, I, I can recognize that. But there are people who believe that so deeply that they can't participate in society at any normal level until they dispel of that belief and really recognize that they do belong, that this is where God put them for a reason, that they have purpose and meaning, that they're invaluable, actually. Something that a lot of churches don't really teach well enough. They don't talk to you belong. You're supposed to be here. You're not a mistake. And so the chapter that I wanted to read from today, even though it hits on a lot of the legal aspects that I think we're missing around who Yeshua really was and is, what's interesting about that is when you call people to repentance, to change, to a lifestyle shift, to becoming more like Jesus, you know what it says? It immediately says, you're meaningful. It's important that you're here. You're so important, in fact. You, you're changing so much about the earth, in fact, that we want you, God wants you 
to be more like him. Because when you're more like him, all that power that you have will head in the right direction. You're purposeful. It's important that you're here and that you do the work that God has destined for you to do, that he has planned for you, that he wants you to do, the blessings he wants you to walk through. These things matter. That's why it matters that you change when you meet Yeshua. It matters that you become more like him. It matters what you do. It absolutely matters. And, you know, first and foremost, we think about Micah, you know, loving justice, having mercy, walking humbly. Have we forgotten the big things? Caring for the poor, caring for each other, loving on each other well. Have we forgotten mercy? Are we so busy arguing with each other on social media, taking our stances about things that we have forgotten who God really called us to be? Yes, there are many doctrines out there that I think are straight up doctrines of demons that get preached in churches, and we should have the conversations around those. And obviously, my book is one giant conversation around 12 different topics that all kind of ties together on where the church in the West has left God's things and forgotten the importance of doing what God has asked. Yes, we have to have those discussions, but if we are not first and foremost ready to love, we are missing our point, our true calling. And, and that brings me to another point. If you're somebody that struggles at this time of year, this seasonal stuff, take a step back. You don't have to do all the things that other people expect of you. In fact, all that matters is that you do what Yahweh expects of you, what Yahweh has asked of you. And one of the things he's always asking is, can you be a helper? When you help others, when you give extra, when you do that special something, you automatically feel better. This is just an immediate dopamine hit, guys. It's a blessing, a blessing for being a blessing, right? It's built into our nature. It's in our DNA that doing good makes us feel good. And so I would encourage you, find one small way to do good every single day. It's going to help you. It's going to boost you. Exercise. Take that vitamin D. Get in the Word of God. Get an accountability partner in your life that can help you. Um, and if you need extra help, you know, it's interesting as I just sent some amazing recommendations to someone who is looking to get off of his medications. He wants to be free from those. They're not helping him anymore. He has a lot of anxiety. Anxiety, a lot of hurt and pain in his life. He's been on meds his whole life. He wants to be free. I know people that, that can help with this. And so happy to throw out recommendations to get you that help if you need it. But I know that this time of year can be a struggle and a trial for many people. Many people feel alone. Here's the thing. You belong here and you're not alone. God loves you. He adores you. He sees you and he has purposed for you to do some amazing things while you're here. You don't even know who you're impacting. What's interesting is a life has this ripple effect. People you may not even meet in your lifetime, they will be impacted by your presence on the earth. So you never know. You've got to hold that hope out. Now, the chapter I chose 
again today, I wanted to read to you from my chapter, The Real Jesus. This is me just trying to be faithful to those who I promised I would get an audiobook to. I'm so sorry. That has not really taken place in any, <laughs> I mean, in any uh, cohesive fashion. So I'm kind of doing it through my podcast. Um, and for those of you that don't have my book, I'd encourage you purchase it. It's called Jesus Was Not a Modern Day Christian. Listen, it's a little more harsh, a little more snarky than I tend to be in my podcast. That's just my writing style. Um, but I think that there's some great inspirational pieces in this book for anyone, um, especially if you get past about the first four or five trap chapters, which are pretty intense. We're going to read from chapter three today. Chapter three is called The Real Jesus. I wrote this chapter. It's a long chapter. I wrote this because there is a Yeshua that we have been told exists by the Catholic Church and by many Protestant churches. And then there's the Jesus that you read in Scripture. And I don't know if you all have read, you know, the entirety of the Gospels as of late. I've been doing that for a project I'm making for you all and, and for others to help people. Um, you sit down and you read the entirety of the Gospels. This squishy Jesus that you thought existed, you know, the one that's got the soft skin, the glowing blue eyes, the luscious hair, and the soft-spoken demeanor. Uh, I, I'm sorry. That is not what comes across on the pages of Scripture. This is a strong, bold teacher who calls people into life change, into transformation. And he does not pull his punches. He is well aware when he is talking to the Sadducees and Pharisees, who are the leadership, who he's very upset with a lot of the time, versus the regular folks. But he always calls people into transformative living. And he transforms lives. People become uh, disciples, right? They, they change after meeting him. He is astoundingly strong and strong-willed. And I don't know why we have put the picture of Jesus in our head that we have. I even think, you know, I know a lot of you probably watched The Chosen. You probably like it. But putting that image of Yeshua in your mind as that is who he is and what he's like, I think is maybe a big mistake. We need to be ready to recognize Yeshua when he returns. And he might not be like what they portray in The Chosen. I mean, you guys are well aware a lot of the scenes and the words that are used in The Chosen are not in Scripture, right? These are additions. These are uh, creative licenses. You know, um, this this stuff, you know, our idea about who God is, it's why the, the Lord forbids us to make graven images of him and, and to make images that are to be worshipped, images that we would bow down before to pray to God. That's what the Egyptians did. That's what the Israelites did when they went out to the desert and they made the golden calf. They made an image that would be their intermediary to God. When we do this with either Mary or with Jesus or with anyone, you know, you put a prayer closet up and then you put pictures of Jesus and Mary and you're praying before them. No, that is forbidden in scripture. And the reason is because you can't imagine God and you can't depict him. And when you try to, you immediately put him in a box. Uh, and by the way, any statue of Mary that you pray to, that is a graven image and an idol. 
you should stop doing that. But um, we can have that discussion later. Let's talk about the real Jesus, okay? I'm going to start here, chapter 3. Now, I'm going to skip some of this chapter. Um, When I go over the holidays, the feast days of the Lord, I'm going to skip that because I've done so much of that in my podcast. You guys can go back and listen to so many different discussions on Yom Kippur and Yom Teruah and Passover. And so you probably don't need that in here. This is a long chapter. It's probably going to take two sessions here, but um, I'm going to begin. Here we go. Hebrews eleven six, but without faith, it is impossible to please God for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, end quote. For as long as I can remember, I have loved to read. I found my own imagination far craftier and invigorating than most movie renditions of books and stories, or maybe I just prefer my own interpretation that much. There's a special magnificence about beautiful language put together in just the right way, revealing ultimate truths about all of us through the unique journey of a particular character. As a child, my go-tos included the Anne of Green Gables series, Little Women, and The Adventures of Laura Ingalls. I'd eventually graduate on to C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, Jane Austen, and Shakespeare. I'd lay on my bedroom floor lamenting over Othello or laughing when Joe March cut her hair in order to sell it, pretending not to care, but unable to escape her own private battle with vanity. As with any good story, these characters start in one situation and end in a completely different mindset, place, or position. The significance of the transformative work, the foreshadowing and connections, the path and process are meticulously laid out, word by word. This process helps the reader understand the intricacies of the characters and the beauty, heartache, challenge, and hope in the events that take place. Without the genesis firmly established and an adept author's ability in weaving story, these characters and places would not pack the potent punch that hooks us. The stories start at the beginning. We read from the start so we can be enveloped in the author's world and understand the details of the characters and plot. What would happen to our understanding if we started the story in the middle? Let's say, for instance, we join Frodo on his journey to Mordor, right after Gandalf fights the Balrog, and falls to what they all believe is his death. Yes, what if you had not the slightest idea who Gandalf was, or what it meant to be a hobbit, or what the ring was, or Sam's loyalty to Frodo, or, well, you see my point, so much would be missing. Sure, through the rest of the story, you may learn a lot, really enjoy it, in fact start to understand the relationships, etc. But you would have no real picture or appreciation of the Shire, the lush green beauty of the place they were hoping to preserve. You would not know Gandalf's importance to their quest, and so when he appears later, he would seem as a brand new character. Even worse, you may misinterpret the characters and their importance. Alternatively, if you happened to start all the way back at The Hobbit, you would fully understand Gollum, the tortured, impressively complex individual who both loves and hates the ring, and how he became such a pitiable creature. You would know how long Gollum had existed. And if you entered the story halfway through Lord of the Rings, Gollum's character could seem outrageously creepy, strange, beyond belief, some otherworldly alien who popped onto the scene, randomly obsessed with the ring, inhuman. This would happen time and again if you continue to approach books from their middle chapters. Character development, plot, foreshadowing, thematic emphasis, they would all be lost and you would be busy filling in the gaps with your own ideas. 
This would be problematic enough with books that you read for intellectual enrichment or entertainment. But what happens when we do this with the Bible? Start at the middle. No context, no background, no foundation. I should point out, we do exactly this with the Bible, almost always. And what holes have we filled in with our own imaginations? What misinterpretations have we promulgated as a result of telling almost all new believers to go ahead and start reading at the book of Matthew? Just jump into the New Testament, we say. This is where you understand Jesus. And yes, yes, of course you can understand so much about Yeshua just by starting somewhere in Scripture. However, in John 5, 45 through 47, Jesus pointedly states that in order to believe him, you have to believe Moses, the same Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible, the beginning. That foundation defines Yeshua and assists in confirming Yeshua's God status. The beginning is the essential element to knowing Jesus. He says it himself, but we've rarely heeded his remarks. The 21st century church seems far more interested in creating our own story, relying on our own imaginations. Our own God? It is in the beginning where we find God's character, pieces of his nature, and the laws he hands to a people of his choosing, and their choosing. They did say yes to him at Sinai after all. We see the story of his relationship with his people, his love and frustration with them, the picture of Christ in Moses as Moses intercedes on those people's behalf, the salvation of that people from slavery into freedom, and the cost of that work. We get the underpinnings of humanity and individual human character, why sin separates and divides and destroys, how God makes plans for the ultimate restoration of his creation. We find his love for each thing he has created and his insistence that humans take care of it and co-create with him. We begin to see that the seed of God is not a seed of physical DNA, but spiritual, as brothers like Jacob and Esau, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael take opposing paths. To understand Yeshua, we must understand what he stood for, what he did, his character, and how that changed things. What was he doing, and what is he doing now? The intention of God's heart and the shaping of ensuing events happened right at the beginning, in the very first words, and Jesus was there, authoring it all, putting himself into it. Do you see him? Many believers don't. They look at the Bible after reading the New Testament, and when they get to the Old Testament, they think they've encountered a completely alternate being. They envision one God in the Old Testament who is grumpy, old, angry, vengeful, violent, and obsessed with rules. The second God shows up in the New Testament. This one is sweet, kind, squishy, probably with a beard, blue eyes, and soft-spoken. Thanks, Hollywood. The squishy God comes to save us from scary God. Squishy God gets rid of the rules and really has to go through it in order to help all these people he loves. Vengeful God accepts squishy God's gift, and the story ends with everyone in a bright, shining, gold-filled heaven where we all do whatever it is that pleases us. Sigh. The end. As Jim Carrey's version of The Grinch would say, wrong But be honest, isn't this really how most believers have viewed Scripture? If people really believed God is one throughout Scripture, why such terror over reading the Old Testament, specifically the law? Why the sole focus on the four Gospels and the later books Paul wrote? Poor, misinterpreted, brilliant Paul. We will get to him later. Sure. Some will read the Psalms a few times, learn the most tertiary versions of Noah's Ark, Adam and Eve, David and Goliath, maybe Joseph, and possibly Queen Esther. But how about good old Leviticus? Who's up for it? Anyone? 
And what about the deep theological conundrums this dualistic view of God creates? Is it possible that God authored all the laws and he gave his people these laws and then sent himself to save us from the supposed curse of those same laws? Is there any realm where that logic works? Does that sort of story plant distrust in God's perfection, holiness, and, well, overall planning strategy? Anyone with a couple of brain cells will answer yes to that last question. Yes, I believe that God, who has to save us from his own rules, may have messed up to begin with. Yes, I'm not sure I can trust a God who has to change the plans in the middle of the story. And yes, I think the idea that God came to save us from himself isn't intellectually repugnant. Realistically, in order to believe in the goodness and brilliance of our Heavenly Father, we have to believe that there is something more to God's law than the cursory reads we've given it. The Ten Commandments and other laws that were given to Moses and the nation of Israel have purpose and meaning. And since sin, sin still exists, they clearly still apply. And yes, it takes some wisdom, study, and work to dig into those laws. Some of them only apply if you are in the land of Israel. Some only apply to Levitical priests. Some only apply when there is an official temple. Some are only for women. Some are only for men. Not all 613 laws apply to everyone in every location at every time, but some do. It's those some that we can apply that would make quite a difference for the believers today. Interestingly, the laws of Yahweh still remain separate and holy from how other religious and secular systems work. God's things are absolutely His. In following them, a natural separation becomes clear and apparent, and yes, blessings follow. Peace, family, righteousness, a love of nature and creation, a love of others, a better understanding of caretaking, a deeper understanding of work. These are just a few of the blessings that begin to transform us as we follow the Creator's instructions. If you wanted to learn to play the piano, you would ask, how do I do this? If we want to follow our rabbi, we must ask in this same spirit, how? The answer is to observe his behavior, read his word, and obey it. What do we know about Yeshua, and how do we apply it? Where have we gotten him right, and where have we gone astray? We follow because we have chosen to, because we love him, because he has saved us. But how remains the divisive question. Where do we stand as a church in the call to follow our rabbi? How do we follow in alignment with him and not with our own man-made version of him? What did Yeshua do and show us that can help us answer this question? Where we often get Yeshua right. The American church, for the most part, does indeed recognize Jesus for his most basic and important qualities. He is God, and he comes to us in human form clearly and miraculously in the New Testament as a servant. We recognize that this coming of his is, as ancient Hebrew rabbis would say, Messiah ben Yosef the suffering servant in his first coming. I've never attended a Christian church that does not recognize these basics about Christ. Jesus described the law and the prophets as being about loving God and loving others, so we understand that one, to love the Lord is to obey his commands, and two, all the law can be summed up under two ideas, loving God and loving others. Modern-day believers want to focus on love of God and others in service, sacrifice, kindness, mercy, and charitable action. Decidedly, this particular conception has helped create some beautiful ministries and generous behaviors that speak to heaven on earth. I credit Christianity for gearing itself towards community service and leaning towards love for our fellow man. It is commendable and beautiful in an ever more self-centered generation. 
Christianity has also recognized the need to die to self, even when the direction might be misguided. Christianity seems to hold an understanding that there are natural human traits that need to be tamed and perfected. Malice, selfishness, vengefulness, violence, dishonesty, gossip, love of money, pride. These and other toxic human behaviors are roundly worked on in the Christian community. I've heard sermon after sermon on the above behaviors and firmly believe that the Christians I know perceive that humans are naturally both good and evil, the evil inclination being an easy one to feed and sustain here on earth. We need to dispense with evil and learn to fill ourselves with good. And yes, this takes training, learning, and discipleship. American Christianity also seems to quite enjoy musical offerings to the Lord, using that time for praise and highly valuing those moments in service after service. Music has seemed to provide a foundation for the loving God part of worship. This quick coverage represents the vagueness with which Christianity has approached these ideas. By vague, I mean mostly using Paul to discuss what obedience and love of God looks like. And Paul doesn't go into detail because I firmly believe that Paul assumes believers have read the Torah already and understand the foundation, or that they will be attending synagogue each week to learn the Torah, as discussed in Acts 15.21. At the time, Paul assumed correctly, over time, Paul's hopes for God's people have certainly taken a back seat, traded for an obsession over a few of his letters to some churches who needed cultural and spiritual direction. Well, Paul, much of the teaching of Torah that you were familiar with has been lost. Let's fix this, shall we? Guys, I'm going to stop there today in my reading of my book. Um, I want to encourage you as I continue to read this chapter over the coming weeks, there's a section that talks about DNA and RNA and how God and the Father work, how the body of Christ works, and how it is reflected at the smallest level in ourselves, in our own bodies. You want to understand that you're meaningful and important, that you belong here? Your body reflects what God is doing on the large scale in his kingdom. I think everything in the Bible and everything in creation is a reflection of the temple, of God's holy house, of his family, and of his system and operations as king and high priest. And when you start to understand that, you start to see it in absolutely everything. It becomes so apparent, the patterns uh, become so clear. And so I hope you'll join me in the coming weeks as I continue to read this chapter. If you haven't read my book, um, this is a great opportunity for you to get a taste of it. But I would love for you to purchase it on Amazon. It's called Jesus Was Not a Modern Day Christian. That support this year would be huge for me. I do have some other really hopefully helpful products that I'm going to be selling at literally for dollars. Um, because I want people to have them. I want people to be blessed by them. Hopefully, I will be able to finish those up sometime early next year and make those available to you guys. I am working really hard on that. Um, and then I also am working on a way that you can support me at no extra cost to you um, and support what I'm trying to do by reaching out through Substack, through social media, the ministry that um, I am attempting to do. I would like to not just ask people for money. I would like for you to get something in return at no extra cost and still be supporting me. Guys, I think I've found a way to do it. So be on the lookout for that here pretty soon as well. Here's the thing. If at any point you're really struggling, this December, this January, this time of year, just whenever, reach out. 
reach out to me, reach out to somebody. Um, I'm here to pray for you. I, I would love to put you on my prayer request list, whatever your needs are, and to direct you to resources that can help you. I can re recommend churches, congregations, um, uh, naturalistic, holistic health professionals, all sorts of people that can help you make sure that you have the joy of the Lord. Because the joy of the Lord, number one, is your strength, but also it's our testimony. If we are not joyful, if we do not have that blessed um, expression because of what God has done for us, it's going to be very hard for us to be a testimony and a light to the world. And that's what we're called to be. So you got to fight for that joy. you got to fight for it at every turn. Get up in the morning and be ready to fight for it. And, um, and trust the Lord with your life. I hope you've been blessed by this. I will be back. Till next time.